Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blessing Game, and I am your host. Today, we have Brock Bevel. Brock is a well-regarded family man with seven children, six daughters, and one son. He is a retired police officer who was run over on duty and ultimately retired from his injuries. The injuries caused him to endure numerous knee surgeries and constant rehabilitation to deal with the pain he was prescribed, opioids. After months and months of therapy, the department and doctors made the determination that his injuries would prevent him from doing the job effectively and could place others at risk. It was decided he would be medically retired from the department. For the next few years, Brock struggled with being retired. The day after turning in his equipment, he felt ostracized and not a part of the brotherhood. This was a huge blow to his ego. One day, you're chasing bad guys, and the next day, you're picking up your kids' toys. It was a difficult transition. It was at this time that Brock's addiction took control of his emotions, and he began to spin out of control, and he proceeded to self-medicate. During the height of his addiction, he went through a very difficult divorce. He lost time with his children and made poor decisions, costing him his children's trust. Since recovering from his addiction, Brock has helped hundreds of men and women combat addiction. He utilizes an unconventional approach to recovery. This approach continues to lead men and women to lasting sobriety. Woo! I just finished this episode. I Usually I record um, the hooks a little bit after, but I just did this episode with Brock. So it is fresh on my mind and it was so much fun for me. <laughs> so hopefully it'll be really great for you. He uh, just retired police officer. He was everything that he was the antithesis of an addict. He didn't, you know, didn't understand it. Super clean cut, became a police officer, was undercover, doing drug busts, just crazy, crazy craziness. And then his injuries. And he got a taste for what it's like when you turn that corner, you cross that invisible line which happened to him as a result of his injuries and then, you know, addiction kicking in. And so he has a really incredible perspective on <laughs> what we're dealing with and particularly around first responders. I have a I have a, a bee in my bonnet, so to speak, about first responders. I think that we're not doing enough to help them with the incredible amounts of trauma that they see on a daily basis. And Brock absolutely uh, is a perfect example of that and confirmed my suspicions. He also answered some of my um, nosy questions about being undercover and even George Floyd and um, some of the defund the police stuff. So great interview with Brock. He is an incredible man. You can find his website at chasethevase.com chase as in run after the vase.com or you can email him at chasing the vase at gmail.com so without further ado please meet my new friend former police officer current man in recovery brock bevel all right episode 88 you know what's coming let's do this Brock. What's going on? I am so excited. Good. Me too. 
Yeah. I'm so excited. I really think that this is going to be awesome. And I love your story and just really, really excited to do this. So well, thank well, just you. wait, just wait. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> if you ask the right questions, you'll get to the right spots. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. Yep. I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, well, thank you for being here. Brock, you are incredible. You uh, have 11 years sober, clean and sober, which is a miracle. You are a miracle. And you are from Mesa, Arizona, and you have eight brothers and sisters. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, we have a big family. I, I mean, I like big family. I'm just thinking about, like, from the mother's perspective. Are there any twins in there? None. No, wow. but we, we, we have a big Big gap. I think it's like 15, 17 years. Oh, okay. Gap. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking pregnant for like years. Well, mom was pregnant pretty much all her life. Yeah. 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 That's uh, as someone who very much disliked pregnancy. I'm, I, I commend her for her, for her commitment to having a big family. <laughs> well, I think what happened was she started having these kids and realized we were hard workers. And so we did, yeah. you know, we helped her on the house and she owned a floors business. So, all the boys know how to make boutonnieres and corsages. And yeah, I mean, we were pretty good at that. Green thumbs. Oh, man, that's awesome. So my children are not hard workers. <laughs> well, we, we had no choice. My yeah. parents were very strict, very Southern. Yeah. 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 So, but you grew up in, in Arizona. They were from the South? They're from Mississippi. Yeah. Oh. So they moved to Arizona. So my dad could start his, his college, go to school. And so they moved out here and started their lives. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And you're the uh, the third oldest. So does that feel like the oldest? Like, how does it? If you have eight brothers and sisters and you're the third oldest, what does that feel like in the family? You know what's interesting is that almost felt like we had two families. Okay. Because okay. so my oldest sister, my brother, myself, and then I have a younger brother, and then there's a gap. Okay. And so okay. it almost feels like the oldest four are. One and then the youngsters, <laughs> the youngsters are another. Yeah, they're totally. How old is your youngest sibling? Ah, uh, man, I I want to say he's like thirty one, thirty two. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, just right. In and the, the oldest there. is fifty two. Fifty two, and she, 52. she, she, she's your old. She's the sister, right? She's my sister. Yes, and she's currently in prison. What is she in prison for? Oh man, that's a good question. She is in prison for. Murder. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone, someone piss her off? Uh, no, actually, it was a. It's kind of a lengthy story. We'd need to do a podcast on that. Okay. But uh, honestly, she's in prison for. She was convicted of killing three babies. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? Like you just can't end with that without explaining a little more. But, but that's what the conviction was. Okay. So three life terms of seventy five years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So so she kills one off. Then she has the next 75 years and the next. So it, she's just not getting out. It's so, okay. So we just, like, <laughs> we just fell into that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Black so, hole. <laughs> black hole. Okay. So let's start with, was she uh, drugs and alcohol? Were, were they involved? You know, there, there were none. Oh. There was a uh, mental illness. Okay. Okay. Definitely were they her mental. children? They were not. She was uh, actually a babysitter for these oh. three children. Oh geez. Yeah. Yeah. Kind oh, of a geez. story. Okay. So how do you, how does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know what was crazy was looking back at I mean, I'm forty eight years old, you know, so we it's been it's been a lengthy time. Mm-hmm. 
How old like, was how old were you guys when this happened? Ah, man, I think she was in her. Th- she so so it's kind of one of those cold cases. Okay, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. So, yeah. Right. So it's so there was she was like eighteen, maybe nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, somewhere. So somewhere in that time frame, and then the babies died, and then she moved out of Arizona, went to Georgia, started a new life, had four children. Oh wow! And detectives showed up at her house in Georgia and said, Hey, we want to talk about these homicide murders, deaths of these three children that occurred in Tempe, Scottsdale, Arizona back in the day. Wow. So, okay. So it wasn't obvious. These weren't obvious murders. They were no, like, no, they were they didn't happen at the same time. Three different locations. Okay. And, and two of them were in different cities. And so that's why they really at first wow. didn't make any combination. Got it. Because what people don't understand is everybody's like, oh, law enforcement, they talk together like yeah, Phoenix, yeah, yeah. Tempe, these little yeah, agencies. Yeah, yeah. There is zero communication. Zero. Is that still to this day? They're doing better on putting their systems together, okay. linking them, but still it's pre- it's it's not what you would. Yeah, We had experiences in, when I worked undercover where we were buying drugs against another agency, oh, detectives. Geez. Yeah, so like that's what's kind of it gets a little sketchy when guns get pulled. Yeah, and it's like, wait a minute, we're cops too, and so you're pulling guns on each other, and it's just yeah, a bad situation. It's a shit show, is what we call it. You know, what yeah. I mean, like a soup sandwich, everything's just falling apart. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 I mean that's uh, that's an interesting, um, and you have great perspective from this from your experience in law enforcement. I, that's how Ted Bundy got away with it for so long, which was he was doing he was committing these crimes in different areas and no communication between the agencies. See, but the problem was I was a police officer at the time that they were knocked on her door. Oh, for the love. But they didn't call me. Like, I wish my yeah. sister would have called me and said, hey, what? I got detectives at my door. What do I do? And she let him in and just talked. And in the trial, I mean, all this stuff's public information. There's yeah. nothing yeah. secret about it. Um, In the trial, she never spoke. She didn't get on the stand. But some of the information that was utilized from her investigation came to light on while she was on this or while they were they interviewing. Were, yeah, using it as an interview. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 you know, the, I mean, you didn't have this experience as my guess because your addiction didn't start till after you were a police officer. But the, the, you know, the mantra for us was we don't talk to cops. Even if you're innocent, you don't talk to cops, period, end of story. And I worked in the uh, public defender's office and it was kind of the same. I mean, it was the same thing. It was like, you just keep it zip. You know, don't say anything because you have no idea what it is that's going to be used against you. And this idea that you can sweet talk is just inaccurate. Well, what's funny is even as police officers, we weren't talking. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's yeah. a, it's an unwritten law. Yeah. Yeah. Just psh, don't don't talk. Well, OK. So do you still have contact with her? Yes. We email. You email. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's been interesting? It's been nice. I didn't talk to her for a while. I went and visited her one time. I took my kids there. It was just, it's hard. Yeah. Hard, you know? And uh, I just started emailing her back and, and it was nice because I get to ask her some questions that happened when I was a youth that I had kind of hidden some trauma that I experienced yeah, and was able to open up those lines of communication between us, which has been really therapeutic for me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have a brother that coaches the Lions. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it, it's crazy. It, he just uh, they just fired their head coach. My brother now became the head coach as of Monday. Wow, how exciting for him! Hopefully, you yeah. like football. <laughs> we love football. Yeah, we're okay, huge good. fans. Okay, good. Yeah, it's great. We love it. We're excited for his opportunity, and he's he's going to do great. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit um, about what your family was like growing up. Like, what was it like growing up in your home with your parents who were from Mississippi, these eight siblings? What was that? You know, we had a good, I had a good upbringing. I mean, it was chaos. You know, things have happened now that I look back on them and be like, whoa, you know, great parents, limited supervision. We were out running amok. I was telling my wife about the first time I used marijuana with my neighbors yesterday. She's like, well, when did you first? Because I was telling her we're going to get into some some things. And so I was talking to her about it. And I mean, I think I was 12 years old the first time I I dabbled in marijuana with the neighbors down the street. And that continued for a couple of years. But we were so involved in athletics. My dad was a head football coach. My oldest brother, you know, he was preparing to go. I mean, he played major college. He played for the University of Wisconsin. Phenomenal athlete. You know, that's just kind of, we were, yeah. whatever sport was going on, we were playing. Yeah. So so drugs and alcohol, other than just kind of dabbling. Yeah, didn't fit. Yeah, it didn't fit our lifestyle. And then we were, we. I was raised in a very, very religious home. Okay. Where we, we went to church on Sundays and, and it was a big big focus, Boy Scouts, you know, we, we really pushed that in our home. And what was the religion? We were LDS or LDS. Yeah. Okay. So did you, and you, you must've done them. Did everybody do a mission? No, no. My old, uh, actually the four boys did. I have, uh, and I have two children right now that are out on missions and I have one just come home. So, so it's, we live it or we teach our kids a little different than we are raised, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But uh, it's a focus of our lives. And so becoming a drug addict was was uh, definitely a, <laughs> a blow. deviation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you, um, I just go through, you, you went, you went to Paraguay for two years on Michigan, on mission. Yes. Um, did you come back learning a lot? Uh, you looks, you learned to speak Spanish there. I did. I learned two languages, Guarani is their native tongue, and we kind of just dabbled in that, learned a little bit just for as yep. much as we possibly could, but then we learned Spanish. And so that, that's been a, an awesome tool that I've used in my life today. And that's why I progressed so fast in the police department and moved up is because right. I was fluent in Spanish. Yeah, I mean, how many good. white guys do you know that can speak fluent Spanish? Not that many. Yeah, yeah. So Not it, was, that many. it was good. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And what a cool experience. I really think that the uh, the LDS is on to something with doing a mission. I think that that, frankly, should be some part of every child's life, um, teenager, what have you, just going in and such a learning experience, such a cool talking to different people, living in different places. I love the LDS young men who come to Southern California because they're, it's it's pretty funny to me. You typically they're from somewhere in in the you know middle of the country. And I I always think to myself, like how you know, you have you probably had your neighbor sent off to some third world country oh, and they man. were like, you're going to Southern California. You hit the lottery. Well uh, check this one out. My oldest brother goes to Ohio. <laughs> I go to Paraguay. Yeah. My next brother goes to Arge, uh, Australia and then Argentina. 
Yeah. So what's up with that? So Ohio brother, not yes. so pleased, not so pleased. You know, he, he, <laughs> he probably like, had a great time, right? He loved it. it he, he, that's where he met his wife and You're right. Okay. So, I mean, it's been great, but he was the one that studied Spanish in high school. He wanted to go oh, to Spanish speaking. My God. I actually put on my papers that I don't want to go Spanish speaking and that's where they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Classic, classic. Okay. So your dad was a cop. Can I say cop? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you want to say, police officer, cop. Do do cops not like the word cop? No, we do. We just don't like being called pigs. You know? Well, okay. That makes sense. uh, Cops is great. But yeah, yeah, my dad was, this was early on. This was early. I'm thinking maybe 70, man, 76, 77. Okay. And and it's not something he talks about. He only did it for two years, but he worked in in Mesa, the same place that I got on. That's a short time. Yeah, you know what's crazy? And the only reason we knew about it is we'd go in the closet and there was his uniform. Otherwise, you wouldn't have known we your dad. We would have known. He didn't talk about it because it was, you know, we were grown, we were grown, we were growing up and and he was in education. He was a football coach. And that's right. That was all he wanted to do. And so he changed careers. But I remember seeing that uniform yeah, yeah. as a little kid. And I would try that thing on, like sneak <laughs> it, because he would get mad, you know. But I'd throw that thing on like, yes. And then as a little youngster, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be a cop. Yeah. What, sure. what did you, what was a, besides the cool uniform? What did, what did you think a cop was? I had no idea. I just saw them on TV. They look cool. They, you know, they chased okay. bad people around and yeah. they had the lights and sirens and they played with guns. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. I'm yeah. In. Okay. <laughs> Frankly, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah. As a little boy, I mean, it did. And then yeah. as I grew up, I was like. You want me to tell you the real reason I went into the police department? I do. And this is going to make you laugh, but it may it may stick with other people. I was terrible in math. Terrible <laughs> in math. And I did not. I was in college and I'd flunked math 165 at the college algebra three times. And I'm like, I can't graduate from college because mm-hmm. I can't pass math. And so I need to go to a career that doesn't have math. And the next best one where they carry guns and get to run around, I'm in. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're, it's, you know, it's not a, it's, yeah. that's, that's not a terrible, I, what I will say is terrible about that is the fact that our education system doesn't prepare us, you know, yeah. that, that's the piece and doesn't pinpoint those of us. Cause I struggled as well. I'm in an MBA program now and I see the difference between the, those of us who clearly never got the extra attention and help Ooh. and that we needed and those who this is just, you know, this second hat for them. So I get that. I completely get that. And I think that's unfortunate um, in the sense that that didn't in in our education system, but what, uh, what a cool opportunity. So you, did you leave college to go become a police officer? Yeah. So I played college football up in Eastern Arizona. Then they cut their program. And I'm like, Hey, let's just, so we moved down here and I started working for a plumbing company and I realized you don't like I'm plumbing. not that guy. I'm not that guy. Okay. So I put in for the police department. I tested, there was like 500 people testing for five spots. And I remember looking around and I'm like, I'm a fish out of water. I don't belong here. It was this huge auditorium where we all came in and these guys were like, huge muscle guys and their pants were bloused and shoes were shined. And I'm like in flip flops and a shirt. I'm like, okay, I might not fit in here, but it was just, it was just a written test. You know what I'm saying? Like if you pass the written test then you can move on, I want to be comfortable. So I 
I was comfortable. I mean, yeah. and it's in Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arizona. It's hot, yeah. right? So, so people that know Arizona, <laughs> I was chilling out. I was, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I passed the test and went through the testing process. And I really think because I spoke fluent Spanish, they yeah. were looking for that, and and I just, I was, I passed the minimum testing and and was blessed, really. Yeah, yeah, and so. Tell me about, so where do they start? You, you start on some sort of basic patrol. Yeah. So that's funny. You, you have four, once you get out of the Academy, which was 20 weeks, you know, you do all your physical, you get to drive. That's where you get to learn how to drive crazy. You get to shoot Mm. guns, you get to wrestle around with, with people and fight. And so they teach you those tactics, which is really neat for 20 weeks. And then you have four months to prove that you can do it. Oh, right. It's called, it's okay. Called, so that's uh, not a, it's not a guarantee. Well, you've graduated, but if you flunk out of your FTO program, which is a field training program, then you don't, you don't progress. Okay. And, and of course they don't want you to flunk out because they've spent yeah. thousands of dollars on you in time, but still I, there are people that flunk out at that phase. But what's neat is, is there's four phases. The number one trainer and your number four trainer are the same. Okay. So they can okay. see you at, at day one and they could see you at the last, That's cool. yeah, yeah, which yeah. was really neat. Yeah. And That's so really cool. I have some funny stories about my, my trainer. And so second and third phases. So in four months you're out of, you're out and you're ready to go. So, so then is the basic patrol, that's part of the, the, the field training. Yeah. They throw in patrol and then you, you stay in patrol. You can't really even move anywhere after you, until you've had two years in patrol before you can even start looking at specialty units. What is patrol like? What What is that? What's your job? Patrol is you're basically in, in Mesa, we went call to call. So you have a computer and you sit every time you get in your car, you have a beat number. So I was like one Charlie 51. It would say, hey, one Charlie 51. Here's your eight calls that are holding and pending for you. Right. And so you're going to traffic accidents, to a suicide, to a molestation, to a domestic violence assault to uh, a neighbor dispute over dog pooping in their yard. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. The things that you have to go through on a daily basis, it's, it's almost pl- it's almost laughable. Okay, so tell me about some of those. We want to hear about some of those. Uh, give me, me a topic. Some... Okay, okay, okay. Give me a topic and I can, I can spew okay, it out. Okay, on your basic patrol, tell me about like a couple of the just gnarliest and a couple of the funniest. Oh... One of the funniest, and this is kind of my, my sense of humor, just how people overreact. We get a call. It was like midnight. We get a call to an apartment complex, domestic violence. The neighbors are hearing the wife screaming, and it's it's loud, and it feels like things are breaking and pushing. And so we get there, of course. You have to knock. And one of the laws in Arizona is you have to, if there's two people in the house, you have to at least visually see them to make okay. sure that they're not dead. Okay. Right. And so I remember knocking on the door, you know, you get there and you're really covert and you're listening and you don't hear anything, but you can hear people talking. So we knock on the door and a guy comes to the door and he's got no shirt on. He's sweating. I know right? where this is going. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I'm like, um, man, sorry to bother you guys. I know it's late, but uh, you have neighbors. Someone complained there's a domestic violence. And the guy's looking at me and goes, bro, I promise you there is no domestic violence going here. I said, well, but I'm sorry, man. And I, and I believe you, but the law is I got to check. So he goes, honey, can you come out here? And she comes out and she's wearing this mini mouse outfit. Okay. Yeah. And so they were involved in extracurricular activities and we disrupted them. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And I, you know, we, we felt like, come on, man, we're, yeah, we're yeah, trying yeah. to apologize to this guy. And, and, yeah. 
and you know, people people just overreact all the Did time. Did anyone laugh? Was oh, we were cracking up. And he was he thought it was funny too, you know. But yeah. like you need to talk to your neighbors and, and either get them a little more a little more involved or <laughs> you know, something's up. You need to either, you know, soundproof oh, or. Man, I'm telling oh, that's so. Funny. Stop making so much noise because people are complaining. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's so it those kind of calls. TV yeah. to noise complaint. Yeah, you know, those are kind of the calls that you you kind of chuckle at. I mean, the gnarliest call. You know, one of the hardest calls for me is where I noticed that I had some PTSD. Yeah, you know, because what happens is people don't really. Some people understand PTSD, but there's a big difference between PTSD, like a, a disorder, and, and a PTSI, which is called an involvement. And, and we have these involvements on a daily basis, yeah. right? Yeah. And I went to a house. I just had my daughter. Her name's Cabri. She was like a year old. We, we got a call to a, a non-breathing child. And I remember that the mom or the dad could not tell us where they were at because they didn't know the, the address. So we, the, the, we were, and the fire department, we were like circling this area because we knew we were close. And finally we get to the house and the dad comes running out and he's carrying this, this yeah. infant baby and the baby's obviously not moving. And he hands me the baby and I look down and when I turned the baby, there was my daughter's face, oh, right? And, and it was just, it's just how your brain works, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't control it. I looked down and I start like getting emotion. I started getting emotional. I'm like crying to myself, you know, am I getting these tears? And I put the baby down and I'm, I'm trying to work the baby until the fire department shows up. And I remember we worked it and worked it and then gave the fire department. They left. And I remember I sat in my car and just sobbed, you know, and, and it took me a while to, to decompress from that. And, and one of the, one of the problems is in the police department is we're supposed to be the heroes. We're supposed to be the machismo, right? We're supposed to be an A type personality, and those events shouldn't affect us. <laughs> but you take those things home and then you're, there's your, your baby and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, and you make that correlation. So it was really hard on some of those events. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and events that I could tell you about, for example, there was a, a school over here. Two girls were leaving school. They ran a red light and collided into a car. The truck burst on fire. Oh I was God. able to get one of the girls out and she's screaming. You know what I mean? The other girl she she dies in the vehicle yeah and where people are like that should affect you that didn't it didn't have much effect on me does that make sense because i was able to displace myself from that event right 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 right. but when i saw my baby's face yeah that was i mean i can't tell you why it happened but i just know i get that 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 kept waking me up i get that there i have certain things like that with uh, you know having doing interventions and seeing hearing gnarly stuff my neighbor their son uh, drowned in 18 inches of rainwater in an empty pool in, mm. in my my current neighbor. And I was the first responder on the scene. No one knew how to do CPR at oh. all. And so they're screaming at the child to breathe. And I run into the backyard, do CPR, you know, the whole thing. My twins, so they're six months apart. So he, he was six months apart. And he was playing right before, you know, so that whole thing of like my kids and I left my kids in an empty house, this whole thing. And I remember, you know, I, I've, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of trauma not compared to a police officer, but I've seen a lot of trauma and there's those situations that happened and just the, the adrenaline, the adrenaline dump. There was a point where I couldn't stop screaming 
And in my mm. head, I'm like, stop screaming. Stop. <laughs> Talking stop. to yourself. Yeah. 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 Like people, there's a people lot. People are watching you. <laughs> there's, and I was on the, so like I handed the kid off. I did CPR until first responders came, handed the kid, kid goes to the hospital. I go back to my house and I'm on the phone and I cannot stop myself from screaming in my head. I'm going, stop screaming. Stop screaming. They can't understand mm. you on the phone. And that adrenaline rush. And I remember thinking to myself, that guy who, that police officer and those firefighters who showed up to take that baby, that was like probably the, I don't know, eighth call they had that day yeah. of all the things that they had seen. And I just wonder, I know, I know, you know, I did EMDR, which was incredibly helpful, particularly because I live next door. So I like needed to be able to function. And that was incredibly helpful. That was one incident. Right. So my question to you is, how does a person, a feeling human person, as much as you can stuff, right? There's still not, you know, that is, you have the equivalency of being in a war zone, right? right. That's the amount of trauma you're seeing. How do you go from molestation to murder to like, how does that in a day not affect you and what did you notice over time when you started to go, huh, maybe this would, maybe it is affecting me? That's interesting. You know, it, the the biggest problem that I see is we had no resources. Right. And, and, and they don't today, you know, even all this stuff, the That's Black crazy. Lives Matter and all the police, they, they you still don't because I, and I can just use it by this example. I was in a shooting and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. A- after the shooting, before I could be cleared for duty, they sent me to a psychologist. And I remember sitting down with the psychologist and it was five days after the shooting. To be clear, you, sh- you, the shooting, you were shot at and you shot someone and killed no, him. No, I didn't get shot at. I shot him. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. So I shot and killed him. So he was pronounced dead at the scene. And um, so before you can come back to work, they have to do a, an evaluation, Right. And I remember sitting in front of the psychologist, kind of like we are, and he asked me, hey, how are you doing? And I remember being so triggered, like, that is the dumbest damn question you could ever ask a human. Like, I just killed a human. I just looked at him. I, I shot him in the in the face, right? Mm-hmm. And so just that alone, yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen dead people a, a lot, but just seeing that you, that you were involved yeah. in that, righteous or not, whether you were justified or not, if it doesn't have effect on you, you have no heartbeat. Yeah. Okay. And so I remember looking at it and then, and then those, those thoughts don't go away. And he's yeah. like, Hey, how are you doing? Like for me, I wouldn't have started off with that question. What question would you have started off with? Um, how's, how's everything going on at home? You know, yeah. how are you and your wife doing? How are your kids handling this? Have you talked to any of your brothers on the police department? How are they handling it? Cause there was eight of us that were actually in the shooting. I shot first and then, so there was eight people that actually, so have you talked to anybody? I mean, you know, just like get to know my baseline before you ask. And for me, it just was a, a dumb question. And I said, have you ever been in a shooting? Have you ever killed somebody? He's like, no. And I said, this conversation's over. Like, I don't want to talk to you because, and, and I, I'm not saying, and I know you don't have to experience addiction to know, to help people with addiction. I know that. It certainly helps. It helps, you know, but, but people still understand grief and sorrow yes. and shame and hurt yes. and, pain and all that. They understand that, but he didn't understand this, what I was going through at that moment. Yeah. You know, so I didn't want to talk to him and, uh, I didn't talk to him. I had to go to somebody else. I had to, they had to find me another guy and maybe I was just irritated or what it was. It was probably on me, but it just, so, so 
you have to learn how to purge and dump a little bit. Does yeah, that make yeah, sense? yeah. You have to be yeah. able to see this stuff and you have to be able to get it out. And so exercising yeah. was a big thing. Church was a big thing for me where I could feel yeah. like I had to be able to rationalize a lot of these events in my life. I had to understand yeah. what my involvement was in these incidents is, Hey, I'm just a first responder. I'm doing my job. And then I got to move on. But, but absolutely the biggest frustration I had Ashley is with the fact that I could never talk to another officer about what I was going through. Why? You know, because like, I remember you come back to, we even debriefed this situation. We had a round table and I, th- I believe we had. Well, let's get into that. Situ- let's, let's talk about that situation real quick. That's the, that, so uh, that was the 2001. Yeah. In, in 2001, it was, it was, uh, no, uh, December 21st, right before Christmas. Hmm. Solstice. Was it 27th. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I want to say it was the 27th of, of, uh, December. So it's coming up. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So do you, you want to talk about it? Is that what you you want to go? Yeah. 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 Let's start. We're we're talking about it. So let's talk about it. So we were doing kind of a Christmas, uh, the DUI task force. You've heard about that, right? Where I've seen it. (laughs) You've seen it. There you go. So, and and most people have been involved in it one way or the other. Well, we were out patrolling and and I was just running my beat. Okay. Well, the officers on motors who specialize mm-hmm. in DUIs got behind of a, a truck. The driver's name was Wade Jordan. They're going on the high on the freeway of US 60, and he refuses to stop. They have enough for for uh, to to pull him over. Enough PC he was speeding. He was weaving. Obviously, they could tell he was intoxicated. They went to pull him over, and he took off and led us on an hour long pursuit. Oof. Okay. On the, when was that the seventeen? No, that was the 60. The 60, 60 okay. right there. Yeah, he was going east like from Mesa to Apache Junction to gl- that okay. area. Okay. So he was going east and he called the dispatcher and said, hey, I have weapons in my car. Don't have the officers approach me. I'm going to kill them. Oh, perfect. He was, he was putting what looked like a handgun outside to shoot at the air unit. You know, he was acting like he was going to shoot. Okay. So a long story short, he goes all the way out east, flips it around and starts coming west. Well, when he starts coming west back into Mesa... Our dispatchers like, hey, we need to get guys. We need to get so there's specialty officers that have been certified in different weapons, right? Okay. Yeah. So the guys that carry the tasers had to get certified to carry a taser. Um, the guys that carry the the big canisters of pepper spray they had to go through the training for that. The canine officers were there. They had to go through. You know, does that make right. sense? Yep. Everything so, you have to be certified on. So I was specialized and certified with a long gun that we called an AR-15. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you've seen most of those in a, in a movie, but that was my specialty. And they were trying to accumulate everybody they could for when this traffic stop happens, we could like minimize the damage Yeah, because we knew it was going to be, a, he told him, Hey, I'm going to kill myself. And so he ends up getting, doesn't know the area turns into a cul-de-sac. Oh, so it turns into God. a cul-de-sac. And then when he turns around to come out, we were able to come in and pinch him in and do a felony stop. Okay. Does that make sense? So the car, yep. his truck was facing us. My yep. car was directly in front of his facing him. So okay. basically I cut him off and then there was a car that came to the left okay. and to the right of me. So we fanned out. So that's yep. called, a, that's called a felony traffic stop that you see depending on the space. So he gets on the phone, calls dispatch, says, Hey, I still have weapons. I need you guys to back off. Well, at this time we're committed. And there's, I want to say there was 30 something officers in this cul-de-sac, three police cars, and I'm at the driver's side, and I had wedged my do- door open, so I was sitting in my seat. I had my my rifle outside yeah. of my window, faced on him. Right. Well, he gets out of the car, and we have our, we have some guys from our SWAT team that were already 
on foot there on there on foot. And they came, um, they had a shield and <clears throat> he got out of his car and was like, Hey, you guys need to back off. I have weapons. I'm going to kill you. And, and you could obviously see he was intoxicated, but he had this big jacket, like a, like a desert jacket, almost like a fire department jacket that had hmm. reflectors on it. So it was thick and we, they approached him and they, they went to tase him and it stuck in his jacket, didn't get to the skin. So it had no uh, effect on him. We're looking at him like that would have shook us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so then some sort of, yeah. And then we, it was funny. We went to, went to uh, pepper spray him with these big canisters Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went, and it, the officer's job is to make sure that thing works. So he goes to turn it on and he goes, Psh. Oh no, it doesn't work. Right. And so, we're oh, no. like, so, so that was kind of embarrassing for that kid as it was, <laughs> but then we had an officer shoot him with a, a beanbag gun. Okay. And it hits him twice in the ribs and it doesn't affect him. And at this point in time, we're like, is he coming towards you? He's out of his truck standing yeah. there. He's okay. not really coming towards us, but he's okay. not backing off. And we're so like, you can't hey, tell if he's armed at the time. Can't see anything. So you we just know, him. you just know that he has said, yeah. Right. And so you have to go off of what he said. And I believe, yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. we set the canine and the canine jumped at him and lunged at him and grabbed his leg and was pulling. But what people don't understand is if the, if the person is not fighting, if they're not jabbing, they're not, it's not going to, the canine's going to release. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the canine came back and then they sent him again and bit him again. So this guy has been beanbag, tasered, pepper sprayed, and, and nothing has any effect on him. And PCP. so he gets, <laughs> uh, yes, gets back into his vehicle. And so we have to back off. And he start, and it was a, it was a truck, a big old school, like 70, 80 something Chevy. So it was one of those heavy metal ones. He throws in drive, guns it. And so I shoot him. You're, you're not in the car though. You're at the window. Yeah. So my door is open and I'm, I'm yeah. through it. And I, and so my fear is I have all these officers behind me. Yeah. 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 Your and I have to kill him. Yeah. And I have an officer in the drive, you know, in the passenger seat and I'm wedged in the doorway too. Oh, good Lord. And I'm like, man, this is not a good situation. So I throw two rounds and the first one goes through the windshield Hits him in the chin, and his face opens up like there's a movie out there. Like, um, I know I exactly. What you're talking yeah, about. but it opened those those aliens. aliens yeah. yeah, it yeah, opened yeah. up and then kind of stopped. But I mean, I shot him with a rifle round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he, the next one shot him, and I hit him, I believe, under the collarbone. And why? And two, he, why? Because two? you always follow up. That's just what how okay. you're trained. Okay. Okay. That's how you're trained, and. He goes down, and then there's a thing called a sympathetic reflex. I don't know if you ever, you know what that is. It's it's when your body's still your body's still moving, or you you cut the head off a chicken and lay it down, and it keeps moving. Mm-hmm. It's just how your body continues to move. Yeah. And he he raised his arm up, and then rounds continued in there. Okay. Right. But his truck, by the time he was done, he came and almost hit my car. So it was it was a necessary a necessary. Yeah, we. I mean, we had to do it. I mean, we went through everything we could. Then he was using a deadly weapon to to inflict harm on us. And so, yeah. I remember I was freaking angry. I was so mad because this guy. I'm like, dude, it's like right around Christmas time. You're drunk, yeah. and I just looked. I really remember looking down on him and being super angry about having to take this guy's life. Yeah, like why did you make me do this? Yeah, why did you do it? And, and I remember where it really solidified was about two months later. I had to go to a deposition with his mom, his dad, and his sister. Oh, good Lord. And so we had to talk about it. We had to go through all the scenarios, same kind of thing we're doing. But then the mom's like, off the record, 
can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a parent. I have children. And if there's something I could do to alleviate your pain, I, I mean, I'd love to. And she says, if you had the opportunity to do it again, would you kill my son? Now that's a hard question. Cause you're looking mom in the eyes. Right. And you're like, I absolutely would have, you know, and, and I don't know anything about your son, but I know at this moment he was struggling right at this moment. He, he was not himself. And the decisions he made is not a rational decision that most humans would make, you know. And so my my job was to protect myself and the officers in my immediate surroundings and protect And them. the cul-de-sac, right? Yeah, and the <laughs> cul-de-sac, yeah. yeah. And that's another story. There was an officer that missed the truck completely. It went into the home. I mean, it was bad. Yeah. So yeah. anyways, and that was that was hard. But I just remember being uh, thinking to and myself, that- man, this addiction crap is real. So did you guys find out what he was on? Yeah, he was he he was like 0.24 on alcohol and he had other drugs in his system. How did mom react to that answer? She I think she she didn't cry and she didn't, you know, she was like, "Wow." But but I remember I think the honesty was important to her that she needed to know where where we stood. You know, we still have to do a job and that's what's hard is you sometimes you have to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and in such quick <laughs> You have to make it really, really quickly. And I think, you know, it's interesting. And so you were really angry with him. And you, at the time, did you have an understanding of addiction? And and if not, what did you think about it? No, I didn't have a total... I didn't. Because at this time, I worked a ton of drug deals and a ton of... Were you undercover yet? Not yet. No. And But I had made a ton of... I think I had been. I think I had been. Yes, I was. So, so even like my whole career, I focused on drugs. Like I loved, I loved um, finding drugs on people. It was like just something that I I found interesting to myself. You know. Okay. So it was just I, yeah, that's weird. But I always wanted to to arrest people. Who okay. Were using it because I felt like they were bad people. You know, okay. they were bad people because yeah. you, you're ruining your life. Look at you. You know, and you're, you're ruining other people. Yeah. 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 And, and I had experiences where I've, I picked up dead bodies from DUIs and you're killing families. And yeah, yeah. and that stuff just pisses you off. It's like, right. Because you're seeing you're out there seeing the actual damage. Right. You're out there seeing like I hear, oh, there was a DUI, but I didn't see it. I didn't see what that looked like. So you guys, you're on the front line seeing you probably, you know, the meth house with the little kid and the, the you know, mm. like all the things you're, you're seeing it, right? Yeah. And so one good thing about working undercover is I became so good at living that lifestyle. Like I started <laughs> loving that lifestyle, you know, about being, being maniacal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and- yeah. Yeah, you could do whatever you wanted and so you tell could me, buy. Tell me about undercover. Like, what are the rules of being undercover? Oh, man. Or are there no rules? Like, can you There's, do drugs? No, no. I mean, sometimes if, if in such certain situations you can. Like, if but, they're going to say, okay, do this drug to make sure you're not undercover. You, you know, and that's funny. One of the things you have to do is you have to have a cover story. Yeah. Okay. And what's interesting is I had a buddy who was in AA and he says, I got your perfect cover story. I'm like, yeah, what do you got? And he goes, I got these chips and there's like one month sober chip, 
uh-huh. a year sober chip. And I said, okay, explain them to me. So he gave me oh my these God, chips. This is amazing. So I carried them in my pocket. I didn't know anything about AA. Nothing. Oh my God. But I you, carried them. You in hate my drug addicts. You yes. want to arrest them. You love arresting people. You specialize in addiction. Yes. And I carried them in and you my carried the, the chips in your pocket. Okay. And yeah. I remember one time I was I, I got we were in a a deal and the guy says, Hey man, you're gonna you're gonna have to use. And I said, Man, I'm sorry. This is I, I, I make money for my family, but I don't use drugs anymore. He, and I pulled out a chip and put it on the table and I'm like, I'm in recovery, right? This is before I knew anything about recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put it down, he goes. Oh, you got four months of you got four months of sobriety. Nice job, man. I said, Hey, thanks. I put my chip back in my pocket. I didn't know anything. Like, if he asked me any more questions, like, hey, where do you go to AA? You know, do you know anything about the steps? I was dead, you know, but but I had enough knowledge to to be able to flip the script a little bit to throw that on the table. And so he he honored it. He honored yeah. it. And obviously he was struggling. He had probably yeah. had some knowledge about AA. And because what I've learned now is nobody wants to be a drug addict. Nobody wants to be an alcoholic. Everybody's just going through something. And uh, I, I kind of, once I started working that level, my kind of getting, I got a little more understanding. Death, but I, yeah. yeah, but I got, I still got pissed off when I saw you hurt your family over drugs yeah. and alcohol. That, that affected me. Yeah. But then I became that guy. And so I was a, I was a total chameleon. I was a total liar. Um, yeah. And it but just, you mean as an undercover or when you got addicted? No, when I became addicted. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. So, so at undercover and stuff, it was just, it was more for, I, I love the, okay. So uh, I mean, I it sounds you, amazing. I want to be I, undercover. I, I was raised LDS. Okay. <laughs> so very serious, clean cut, you know, no yeah, beard. Yeah. Um, the I, I told my thing. dad I want to grow my hair out. He's like, no, you're not going. So when yeah. I became undercover, the first thing that went was my hair. I had earrings. I had huge piercings. Oh, yeah. My goatee was, it was, yeah. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah. I like this. Yeah, this, this is works. what I Dad, it's for work. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he hated it. But, yeah, yeah. but when I come home, he knew what I was doing, so he didn't question it. But, yeah, yeah. But I, I dug it. I, yeah. I, and and I, I felt like I lived, and I started like almost living that lifestyle. And, and so it was, yeah, I, I liked, I loved working undercover. Best part of the whole job. I mean, it sounds really fun. And yeah. ex- I, see, I'm, I'm an adrenaline junkie. So stuff like that is, um, you know, on my honeymoon, I went, we went uh, swimming with great white sharks in South Africa and then walked with lions in Zambia. Yeah, and, I saw that picture. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I so you know we jumped we we on a date we went and jumped off a 100 foot bridge and you know just stuff like that. So for me being undercover is just amazing. Um sounds like so much bad fun. Yo, you know, the cool thing was is you were in charge of developing confidential informants and I love that part. Oh yeah. You know, so the CIs oh, you were just like work the shit out of people. You work you work them. You work oh. them. They give you any information. Right. And it's oh, crazy man. how money is a motivator in, in addiction. Oh, right. A hundred percent. And it's terrifying, actually, because yeah. people rely. There's a lot of reliance on that anonymity and you see why. And maybe you have um, you probably have more insight on this, but you I can see why people kill each other or people have to cut each other's arms or fingers off because the level of fear you have to have to not sell someone out has to be greater than your addiction, which frankly is Doesn't happen. next to impossible. 
Yeah, it was funny because you hear about all this stuff. Hey, man, I'm the, I'll never dime you out. And uh-huh. I'm going to tell you right now, everybody talks. Everybody, everybody. talks. Everybody talks. You've everybody never talks. you've never met one steel trap? Man, no. I've no. never met so never met him. That's that that was legit. Heads up to, heads up to Mesa, Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's everywhere. I think because because if you realize, hey, I'm going to jail or I can give this dude some information, I'm gonna give him some information. But what about the gangsters? What about the 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 people involved in gangs where they go into jail as a rite of passage and they're protected in jail and they get uh value out of jail? Listen, they they still talk. Yeah, they still talk. Yeah, they, they do. Yeah, because nobody. I mean, we're all humans, right? We're all. Yeah, humans. nobody wants to be in a cage. Nobody wants to be in a cage. Yeah. So, so if I can minimize it at all, and and they might not give all the information up, but they're giving something up. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Okay, so this is important. Listen up. I'm going to talk a lot about it. Lion Share Coffee. Lion Share Organic Coffee. A hundred percent of the profits fund recovery. They go to scholarship people for substance abuse treatment who cannot afford it. Lion Share Organic Coffee. The coffee has the roasted date on it. We partnered with Common Room Roasters. They're a very fancy coffee shop. And this stuff is next level great. Furthermore, you are helping pay for someone to get treatment who cannot afford it. So not only are you getting your caffeine shot, you are giving back. So we have um, subscription prices and then one-time purchase prices. We also have different roasts. So if you're really into your coffee, you can check out the different flavors. Again, I'm going to say it, Lion Share Organic Coffee, 100% of the profits fund recovery, substance abuse treatment for people who cannot afford it. So Give the gift of recovery, my friends. The holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is, you guys, uh, this is a great gift and it's the gift that keeps on giving. So go to lionrock.life backslash shop dash products. So if you just go to lionrock.life, you'll find the coffee. But um, go to lionrock.life shop and that is where you can find Lion Share Organic Coffee. Please help us help others. How do you tell someone that you are... So like if you are going to um, get someone to be your CI, your confidential informant, you have to show your cards, right? Yes. Yeah, you absolutely do. And so you can't do that to very many times, right? Or how does that work? How do you? How did you maintain undercover while also showing your cards to more than one person? Well, we had, we had a team of eight guys. I was on the SCAT team, which is called the Special Crimes Apprehension Team. So they, they couldn't come up with a better name. It, I loved it. It the was SCAT cool. Team? The SCAT team. Yeah. Special okay. Crimes. Uh, yeah. We never thought about that. The shit team. <laughs> the shit anyway, team. Yeah, we didn't think about that, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was fun, you know, and like we had different guys for different elements. So okay. everybody had a different skill set. I yeah. was good at drugs. Other guys were good at communicating, you know, like talking. Yeah. And right. so depending on what we were doing, we let a different guy do a lot of the work. Just because I made the arrest didn't mean I had to be the undercover. Okay. Right? Okay. So we could switch off. And, and what we did most of all, I'm not trying to give all those tools. Yeah, sorry. Over, no, but that's, we would arrest um, a lot of local prostitutes. Why? Because they knew all the information. 
So mm-hmm. all the prostitutes either had a warrant or they would easily be willing to trade drugs for something. And and instead of going to jail, they're like, hey, if I take you to two dope houses and intro you in so you can so they would intro us mm-hmm, and then, mm-hmm. hey, can we come back? Or they'd see our faces. So the next time we come around, that prostitutes out, out of the picture and we're in the door. Right. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. And no, so, it makes I've, I, I, it's, you know, the interesting thing about the I would think that the the dope houses would be weary about the prostitutes bringing guys over there. They but did. It's all, funny. That's all they did. They, br- they yeah. brought their Johns there and that's what yeah, most yeah. of them did. They took their Johns and walk in, they get, and, but they did all the negotiation, mm. right? For us, I'm like, you take me in, but I want to do the talking. I want to handle the money. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. That, that's one, that's one drug deal for the County attorney. So you're building these cases against these drug houses. And so you're like, okay, I'm doing a really good thing here. I'm going to shut another drug house down. Right. But do you think that that's doing anything? Do you think that did anything? Like, is that really like on a, on a more philosophical, obviously that sounds like great fun. Um, but on a more philosophical side, do you think that that was helping the problem? No, no. <laughs> I mean, all we were doing was shutting down one place. I mean, we saw it. And, and then two days later, the same guy that we were just, we bought from is now living down on the other street. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. And so we're not, not really, it, it wasn't the greatest. And our goal was not to hit just the bottom. Right. You wanted to move up through the chain and try to get the bigger players. Right. Right. That makes sense. And living in Arizona, there's a lot of big players. Did you deal with um, cartel stuff? I didn't because it wasn't my specialty. Got it. I okay. Didn't. No. Even though you spoke Spanish, I would think they would want you on that. Yeah. Because I usually did the ear. I usually listened to the conversations. Mm. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Translation. And so, yeah, we would do the translations and we would hear it out and do that kind of stuff. So, Yeah. Tell me about what happened that got you to the point where <laughs> uh, through all of this yeah. and just talk about eating your words, right? I mean, all, it's all happened. It's happened to all of us. How did you get to this place where drugs became something that you wanted to experiment or not, not, not to experiment, where they basically did to you what they had done to the people you do? That's a good question. So April, I believe it was like April 11th, 2002. So just after this the shooting a couple months later, uh, we're working. Of course I was working with the prostitute. She was giving me information. I'm back in patrol. I'm on a specialty unit. I, I um, on the bike team. So we okay. would work, um, certain areas and projects and try to reduce some of the flow of drugs in those areas. And we were working in this one specific area. We knew the prostitutes and she's like, we contacted her and she's like, listen, if you don't take me to jail tonight for this warrant, I will, give you some information mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, depending on what you're going to give us. Cause you hear this all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Well, she tells us about this drug deal that's about to go down right in front of us. It's going to be a lady's going to drive up. She's going to be accompanied by her 12 year old daughter. Yeah. As a passenger, then the drug dealer is going to come up to the passenger side. He's going to do an exchange through the window. The girl's going to get with him and they're going to take off and they're going to go have sex and mom's going to go use the drugs. So there was an exchange for money for drugs for the daughter. Right. Do they and give so, the daughter back? Yeah, they would give her back when everything's done and then she'd yeah. take her home. And and I guess speaking of mom, this wasn't the first time. Yeah, I, I doubt it. That's- so here's the here's the caveat. The thing that really ticks me off is is the lady, the driver, when her name was Cindy LaFond. Cindy was in jail. She was facing f- uh, felony charges. She sees the judge. The judge is like, hey, it's Friday. I'm going to send you home. 
get your affairs in order, get your family in order. You're going to come back Monday. You can stand in front of me and I'm going to give you your sentence. So what does she do? She goes and picks up her daughter, brings her back to the valley and tries to exchange her for drugs. So her habit, I mean, that just tells you where her habit was at, right? So long story, uh, the truck pulls in, the, the drug dealer comes up to the passenger side. There's a conversation. There's a quick exchange. We come up and stop the situation. We, we detain him. So we handcuff him and put him on the curb. And I talk to the driver who is identified as Cindy LaFond. And she tells me pretty much the sob story and tells me that she's a victim to this, that she just drove up. She was going to do some laundry or something in the area. And (laughs) this guy comes up and approaches her and wants to sell her daughter for drugs. I'm like, sounds reasonable. Right. So, (laughs) yeah. uh, Yeah. So I switched my my partner, whose name was Max. Great guy, still hang out, uh, still talk with him. Um, he comes around and starts contacting her. But when I was there, I looked down on the floorboard and I saw what looked like drugs. There was a vial, and it was like a, a murky colored vial. I'm like, what is that? Like I thought in my mind, it was steroids. It's oh, kind okay. of kind of the steroid bottle that you see. And I could look in, there was other type of foils and stuff. And I'm like, okay, no, no matter what, we're going to be able to get in her car because there's drugs in the car. Yeah. So he comes around. And so the vehicle, I don't know if you can see it on video, but the, vid- the, the vehicle's parked and there's a business in front of her. And so he contacts the passenger or the driver and he's sideways. So his foot, left foot is closest to the front tire. Okay. And I'm in the back. Behind the back right tire, and my foot is behind, you know, my right foot. Behind the same tire? Yeah, but on the other side of the car. And I'm looking looking at Bobby, who was the drug dealer. I'm going to sell him out. Just kidding. But that's what his name was. (laughs) Now, I could see him, but I could also see the passenger while he's making the contact. And I remember him asking for her name, and now he wants her driver's license. And she's like, you know what? F this. And she takes it and throws it in reverse. Why we did not make her turn the car off, I still don't understand. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but her car was, the truck was still running. Well, when she reversed back, he got caught. He got caught under the the tire. His left foot fell down. She ran over his back. Oh, my God. Okay. And I remember hearing him, like, throw out a scream. And I'm like, dang it. Well, at the same time, when she reversed back, my right foot got caught under that back tire. And I go to... I go to pull out and it snapped, broke my cuboid bone on my foot. So it broke my ankle. And then of course I went to step and, and get my balance back and the tire came and hit me right in the, in the knee. And so it tore all my ligaments out of my knee. Oh my right? God. And so the crazy part was, I remember. And this happened thinking, in like a split second, right? Second, seconds. And I remember thinking, damn dude, that, that was bad. And I remember, remember stretch Armstrong, that you could take and stretch him really far. Yeah. When I looked down, that's what my knee looked like. It stretched out oh my God. and then came back. And when it came back, I'm like, all right, you're okay. You're still in one piece. And so she reversed back and got stuck on a median. Like her tires got hooked like that, which was crazy. How the, the heck did it happen? On the side. Yeah. And gets wedged in there. We were able to approach her. Um, <laughs> we arrested her. Max got up after his back yeah, was broken? He was, yeah, he jumped up. I don't know the damn. I can't remember exactly the damage, but he was pretty jacked up. And uh, yeah, but the adrenaline and, was at a, yeah, yeah. At so an you're all-time. and you're walking. I'm I'm running to the because I'm pissed. I'm I'm oh. like I cannot believe you just hit us. <laughs> Do you know who we are? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was so mad, and so we were able to arrest her. We were able to get the daughter to safety, and 
that's where I kind of was so angry. I was yeah. so angry at the situation because I have daughters and I'm thinking, man, yeah, this isn't cool. But so, so what happened? Let's fast forward a couple months. I'm going through therapy. I'm going through rehab. I definitely want to get back to work. Okay. Okay. But my doctor the whole time saying, Hey, there's a possibility that you're not going to be able to, to come back uh, from this because your injuries are pretty severe and you're almost a liability. You know, you've had two surgeries. I blew my hand out uh, a little bit later. Um, but anyways, the doctor, you blow, you blew uh, your, I pun- yeah, it's a different story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the doctor, he becomes one of my good friends. His name was Dr. Levine. He's retired now, but he helped, he was basically putting me back together. Yeah. And I remember one thing that kind of rang to my head. He says, Hey, you're a police officer. You're never going to get hooked on this medication. Right. That is the craziest thing I've ever Crazy. heard. Yeah. And he tells me that I'm like, all right, cool. You know what? I'm good. And I started using the medication and now we're talking months o- and months opiates. and months. Yeah. Opiates. Yeah. Cause you're and in so pain. I was in pain. I was in pain. So I, I'm, I'm trying to get back to the work. I'm still using the opiates. And, and this whole time, remember this, I worked undercover. So I would come home and I knew exactly what to say to my wife. I knew exactly how to talk to my kids. I knew what to say to church people. I knew like other officers and nobody ever asked me, Hey dude, are you hooked on this stuff? I mean, I was coming back to work and I was still using it and I, and I was using it maybe a little more than I should have, but so I was being stop. sent home with those big bottles. You okay. Know? So what were you being sent home with? I had, man, I had Percocet, some Oxycontin, um, Darvacet. I mean, we just kept switching it up. So what, was I think this is a big thing. What what was that you know kind of invisible line from treating your pain to using? Like how do you delineate? Because there was a point where you were treating your pain, and then there was a point where you were using. What? How do we separate those? Okay, let me let me. So then let me get to this point. They 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 find my injuries too bad, so they retire me from the police department. Okay, this is like maybe this was in two thousand four, early two thousand four. All right. And where it started was the day after my retirement. So when you retire, you sit in a boardroom and there's like eight officers and they hear about your injuries and they're like, hey, we're sorry, but be due to your injuries and what your doctor's notes say, we're going to retire you. Well, for some people, they're like, oh, that's bad. Yes. Smoking. I'm going to get a retirement. I can go get another job. You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. That's cool. For me, I was like, what? Like that was my identity. Yeah. That was my vibe. You know, like people would come up, Hey, you're a cop. Oh, you work undercover. And they want to know stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I had them. So I was like the head of the party. I was cool. And then the next day I remember going to the police department because they were like, you got to turn all your gear in. And I got to buy my gun for a dollar, keep the badge. And that was all cool. But I remember when I turned my keys in, I was like, Oh, things are going to change. Because I can't come back and see these guys. So this team of men who I was given my life for on a daily basis are now gone out of my life. And being able to see them versus text them or call them every now and again is not the same. So when I came home, I became so depressed. I became sad. I was like, this sucks, dude. Like I, I went through, a, uh, I didn't know who I was. You know, I'm nobody now. Because yesterday I was a police officer. Today I'm a tool. You know what I mean? I'm just that guy. I'm just yeah. that guy. And so that was very, very hard for me. And I remember at that point I began to self-medicate 
Okay. And, and before I was, I was using probably more than I should have, mm-hmm. you know, but now I'm just using it because I'm sad. Yeah. And I noticed yeah, that yeah. I took, if I took the opiates, I could, I was better around my kids. I was better around my wife. I wasn't, I was more tolerant. And so, and the, and the thing for me is I never, ever had to chase drugs. Yeah. I'm totally different than everybody else in my story. I had a plethora of drugs. You know what I mean? I never had to look because it was there Yeah, in my cabinet anytime I wanted. Because I could go back to my doc and say, hey, man, this stuff's not working. And I did all the time. Hey, doc, this stuff's not working. Can we try something else? Because I heard from my buddies, hey, this stuff's stronger. It's better. It's longer lasting. So try this. So I would go and switch it up. But now I had three doctors I had a knee doctor, I had an ankle doctor, and I had a hand doctor. Mm-hmm. And so I could just go, and I was doctor shopping. I was playing with the doctors. and But they were sending me home with, like, those big pill bottles, 360 mm-hmm. pills, 90 pills. And I'm like, crazy. crazy. And, and remember, it's back in the day. Well, not really back yeah. in the day. I'm no, I mean, it was. Old, they, don't, they don't do that anymore. They weren't communicating. Like, my doctors yeah. did not know yep. what the other doctor was prescribing. Yep, And it got to a point where I'm like, I have so much, I mean, I don't want to say so much extra, but I have extra. So I called a buddy up and said, Hey, do you want to start selling these pills? And so here, okay, this is the full circle right now. Like, this is what I despised. Right. And all of a sudden now I'm starting to get that, be that guy where I just wanted extra money. And you know what to do, you know. Yeah. I didn't touch the dope. I didn't do, you know, I wasn't going to be the one getting caught. Was he going to do, Hey, this cop's giving me dope. Yeah. I mean, no. And so that's what I was be I'd be doing. I'd send him down to with 60 pills and he'd come back up and give me like 500 bucks. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, but but I was able to disassociate it because it's legal. And the doctor gave it to me, it's just extra, someone else is in pain. They need it. You know, that's that freaking mental Twist. just crap that that addiction does to us. Yes, you know? it does. And I remember I was taking a lot at the end there. I started taking a lot of those pills. And I was just, I lost my family over it. I, uh, you know, I'm retired from the police department. I went through a few jobs and it just, uh, I noticed that I was not the person that I was. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what it does to us. And, and I think your example is such a phenomenal one because you were the antithesis of a drug addict antithesis. You're everything a drug addict hates, yeah, right? 100. And, and you know, everything from, you know, clean cut LDS to police officer to undercover drug, yeah. you know, the whole gambit. And, and I think that shows what's so cool about your story is that shows you the powerlessness that comes in when you get addicted. The, the, you know, we, we all, I, I, I could, I'm, I'm going to, speak for everybody who's listening to the podcast. We all hate the woman who's selling her 12-year-old daughter, mm. right? Instantly, we don't care anything, any circumstance, whatever. But, but the truth is, and and the ugly truth is, is that if you go far enough in this disease, if you go down far enough, you will do things that are as atrocious as that. And you think you're different. You, we, we all do. We all think we're different. And I would... I I would profess to you that I would never do that, even in my addiction. And I hope that that's true. I hope that that's true. I hope 
that that's true. I, I surmise I would abandon my kids before I would do that. But the point is she and I have the same disease. You and she have the same disease. And I think that's the scary part is when you think about it, we have the same disease as that person doing that. The thing that we find despicable, but we have the same mental twist. That's terrifying. That's terrible. And so that's the difference between cancer and diabetes. And, you know, because everybody's like, hey, is it a disease or is it not? Listen, I don't give a crap if it is or not. Whatever you want to categorize it, I know it made me do some funky stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and things that I am ashamed of. Right. Right. You know, and, and I'm glad I went through it. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad I went through it. Uh, you know, our stories are are phenomenal for other people because it, it gives them hope. But I'm telling you what, man. Whew, not fun. Not fun. And I, and it, it makes me want to help people out. Yeah. Tell me about what your bottom, so to speak, looked like. So you, your family left you. Did they? I'm assuming they came back. Um, my kids did. My kids did. Yeah. I, I have a great relationship with my kids. Well, I mean, I'm even struggling today with them because of things that I did, but, but it's okay. I mean, I got to live with it. I'm, I'm still putting pieces together. I have a great relationship with some and others are still struggle with dad's decisions and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, my rock bottom, I believe was, um, there was a night that I came into my house and I went into my bathroom and I, I wanted to get high. I remember I had a bad day and that's the crazy thing. When you have a bad day, it feels like all your days become bad. You know, yeah, you have, you have a bad life, man. And I remember I went into my cabinet and I opened it up the medicine cabinet and there's all my pills perfectly placed. It's so, so extent that I would write down how many pills are left on them. That makes sense. Like, okay, you have 82 pills mm -hmm. left. Yeah. And, uh, but d perfect, perfect order. And I shut the, shut it and the mirror shined into my bedroom so I could see like my yeah. bedroom and I'm looking at this and I'm like, that's a crack house, bro. You live in a crack house. Oh. My room was a mess, a disaster, clothes everywhere, uh, polar pop pops everywhere. Just, it was a disaster. I'm like, dude, you live in a crack house. The same stuff that you despise, that mm -hmm. is what you're doing. And this actually is where I made a grave mistake. I I'm like, I'm kind of a limited self-control kind of guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I opened the cabinet and I was just raged with anger and I opened every single bottle up and I dumped them all on my toilet and flushed oh. them. Oh, oh. And then I'm like, wait. Oh, oh, that is, I, oh, that is man. And I had, mm -hmm. I had nothing left. I dumped all my, I mean, every single pill was gone. Right. That and remember, moment I, of I was, ooh, that was moment of clarity too. I'm telling ooh, you, now. that was a moment of clarity that you were about to be hurt. Yeah, I was talking to Jesus. Let yeah. me just tell you that. And this is a for real story. And I did. I went through it. I remember. I said, "Okay, well, you made the decision. <laughs> you can live with it because you can't call your doctor and say, hey, Doc, I have no pills left.' Because he's going to be like, I just gave you a big bottle.'" Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So I was like, okay. And you know, you rationalize everything. Okay. How am I going to get it? Yeah. Uh, does my buddy have some? Yeah. Uh, and, and you're just tripping. And I'm like, you know what? This is, this is, you did that for a reason. It's time to stop. So that right there was my moment where I just drew that line in the sand and I fought and I, uh, I detoxed and it took me seven days 
it was remembered. Like I told you, I have a, I, I feel like I have an amazing relationship with God. I always have. It's always been just kind of in my life. I found my own, my own vibe with him and I have never been so sick. I've never, I crapped myself about a hundred oh, yeah. times. I threw up all over myself. I mean, you, you know what people know what detox looks like, but I remember I was throwing up so violently, nothing was coming out, but it felt like my bones were, were going to break. And so, so a day three, I think it was, I remember laying in the shower, hot water, cold water, hot water, cold water. Yep. And I remember having a conversation. Okay, God, here we go. Listen, I'm going to promise you right now. And I heard, now, I don't know if I was hallucinating, <laughs> <Auditory>. <laughs> uh, but I heard him laughing at me saying, son, Brock, listen, you haven't even felt it yet. If I, if I let you get up and walk out of here, you're going to go right back because you've done it before. You've made these promises. You've told me you would stop. I've helped you through it. You're on your own. Click. Like you hung up on me. I'm like, oh my gosh. I remember thinking, okay, man, this is for real. Like I got to do this. And I would walk downstairs and grab water and grab crackers. And, you know, as I went through it, I started realizing where are my people at? I had nobody. I had nobody calling me on my phone. Yeah. I had nobody checking. Nobody was missing me. Yeah. That's the worst. That's the worst. I've I've had that experience where you you're gone and you're literally missing and no one's looking for you. Nobody. And nobody nobody even knew I was going through it. Yeah. And I'm like, I could die here, people. You know, I'm thinking to myself, well, will someone please come at the door and check on me? Yeah. I want yeah. someone to verify that I'm really going through this. Right. You know, and, and it was it was day seven. It really was. I remember I was able to move around a little bit and I'm laying in the shower and I said, Okay, you know what? I, I see what you're putting me through. And I said, if you let me walk, if you let me get up and get some energy and walk out of here, I commit to you. I'll never, and this is me talking to God, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll never go back and use ever, no matter any, any circumstance, I won't do it. And I remember at that moment, I was uh, like, my body felt empowered. Like my strength started coming back and you, you, you people can say what they want. But at that moment in time, I knew in my own life that they're, that's my higher power. Yeah. That's, that's my go-to guy. And, and he gave me the power. I stood up and I walked out of that room. Never will I touch another opiate because I don't want to go through that again. Yeah. That makes sense. I know that it's a progressive disease. I know that addiction is progressive. So if I go back, I'm going to start right where I left off and I'll be taking about 20 pills a day because one's not enough. And so I, I, uh, I owe a lot of it to to God. I do. Um, I'm glad I went through the pain. I'm glad I felt like my body was going to die because <laughs> that keeps me, that really does keep me grounded. Even 10, 11 years later, I don't want to go through that again. No. Does that no. make sense? So that, oh, yes. that keeps me, keeps me cool. I mean, that stuff is just, it is. And, and it's interesting because it's a double-edged sword, actually. I think that the, the cruelty of the detox is a double-edged sword because in some ways it's also what kept me using because I was so afraid to have that experience. And then you have that experience and you none of us want to ever experience that again. And so it's an interesting thing. People will do, I think that's one of the most interesting things about I don't know if interesting is the right word, but about heroin and about opiates, people will do the most extreme things because it is the most extreme pain to go through detox. Hmm. So, you you know, it's that double-edged sword. Yeah, no. And, and that's what I try to tell people. I said, if you're going to do this, you got to be prepared. You you got to be really 
ready to do this. Yeah. And you don't have to do it the way no. that, you no. know, there are medical detox. In fact, it's probably better to do medical detox. Um, there are ways to do it, but I will say, <clears throat> and you know, this is, I don't know how popular this is, but I will say there is some value in feeling the effects of what you've been doing. You know, I do think, I know someone who <laughs> did a detox where they like put them out for it. And, you know, what whatever one may think of that, what I thought was, you know, I don't think that you have the same respect for your recovery in the same, there's like um, an amount of, I just don't like remembering that feeling, mm. being able to conjure that feeling in those moments of like, I really want to use or feeling hopeless or whatever it is. And if you didn't have the experience, it's hard to hard to recall that. I totally agree with you. Cause I remember, I remember there was a time I'm like, okay, I, I was going through every scenario in my head. If I could just get a pill to make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. Right. But I was stuck. I was stuck. I didn't have anything. I had no friends. I, I had alienated everything. And where did you I, go? What did you do? Nothing. I stayed right there in my house, <laughs> in my house. Yeah, because I said I'm going through this, and I'm and and it get to a point where I'm like four or five. I'm like, okay, I don't know how long this is going to stop, but I needed the pain to go away. Yeah, yeah. But so I totally agree with you. I, I think medical detox is, is a great way to go. You shouldn't. You should suffer a little bit just yeah. to know the effects of it. Right. But you can die from that stuff. Yeah. You yeah. Can die. How did you find community? How did you find recovery? Because it's one thing to be abstinent, right? Get the drugs completely out of our body physically, but then there's the recovery piece. How did you discover that? That's, that's a, such a good question. I ended up um, using my my degree. I actually finished my math courses, went back to school, became, uh, I got my, my, my degree in literacy studies. So basically I'm an English major who can't spell. <laughs> um, seriously, it's so badass. It's terrible. <laughs> but uh, I got into education. I worked my way up and worked as an assistant principal in a school up in Sholo, Arizona. And I loved doing that. But I realized that a lot of the parents were struggling with similar things that I was going through. I could smell alcohol on them. I could see, I could see families coming in. They had that, you know what I mean? I knew they were under the influence. And so I talked to my principal and he's one of my best friends. He's like, you should start a rehab up here. And I'm like, what? That's the craziest thing I ever have heard. And so I did do some research. His daughter worked at a, a community in Prescott and I got some information and I built my community around my sobriety, which sounds crazy, but I'm selfish. I needed people. Yeah. Makes sense. So I brought people into me so I could find friends. And so I did, I started five and a half, almost six years ago. I started a a business up in up in northern Arizona for a rehab. Are you in Prescott? No, Sholo. Sholo. Where's yeah, Sholo? Pine, uh, it's up by Pine Top. Okay. So it's, yeah, in, yeah. it's in northeastern. So Flagstaff's up more west. Got it. Okay. So we're as north you can get closest to uh, New Mexico. Okay. And so I started it because I wanted to be around people who needed help, but I knew what addiction I knew that once people got sober from addiction, the type of individuals, they're warriors. They're yeah. the toughest individuals I've ever met if you mm -hmm. can get them sobriety. Yep. It makes sense. And so that's how I built my community. So I built my community around recreation, recreational therapy. So I took the guys, we went camping. So all the dude stuff that yeah, I yeah. wanted to do that I was missing in my addiction, I just implemented in therapy. 
I and love so, it. yeah, so I got paid to go camping. I got, I got paid to, to build brotherhood. And so yeah. really the, the thing is I built myself a community because I needed one. I lost it in the police department. I knew the importance of it. So I went and just found guys that wanted to grind. Yeah. Did you, um, did you get involved with 12 step or was it, or what, or did you find some alternative? You know, that's interesting. I never, I never did the 12 step program. I know about it now because of the therapy I've gone through. I've done all of it, but it wasn't my mode of sobriety. My mode was find a higher power, be committed to that and just find the three, the, the four things, home, health, community, and purpose were the four things that I needed to make sure that were right in my life for me to stay sober. I needed to have a home that was safe that I could come home to, right? Mm -hmm. My community needed to be bigger than me, something that was pushing me to them. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so church was a community, uh, the church in Pine Top, which is a non-denominational church. I would go there and hang out with the pastors, just good people, mountain biking. I picked up mountain biking, found a mm. community there. So just kayaking. I love the kayak. So these little communities helped me stay sober. You know, yeah. the thing is I started crossfitting, started coaching CrossFit and that kind of, you know, you just put yourself into those environments that force you to stay sober. Yeah. 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 Know? Yeah. And so and that's what I did. Is your treatments, is your rehab, what is, is it still going? You know, it transferred hands to another gentleman. It, they're still running up there. So, But I moved down to Arizona or moved down to the Phoenix area because I wanted to change my my approach to therapy. Okay. I, I loved I loved running the recovery program, but I found it very difficult to teach to such a large group. I know that you have a phenomenal program. We were teaching in rooms of with 25 guys. Yeah. Our, our, our groups are eight people. Yeah. So, so, and I love that. I love that. Uh, we lived in a really small, small town and to find professional. Yeah. Uh, and the people that have gone through it, I, I really feel like you have to experience addiction to communicate about addiction a little bit in some of the areas. And so it, it was hard to find. So I moved down here with my wife. And so we could start, I wanted to do one-on-one more small group. And, and so that's basically what, and I want to get into law enforcement and help men that are struggling with yes. PTSD and addiction. So those are kind of a lot of my approach that I want to do. What are you, do you have ideas about um, how to help police officers, um, people in law enforcement, you know, really change the way that we handle and we address the PTSD that's rampant. Well, you think anonymity is important in 12 step. Yeah. yeah. Try talking to a police officer, right? And, yeah. and, and you can get to them, but the problem is they got to know that you've gone through it, that you care about them and you love them and you want to help them. Yeah. Because sharing your feelings as a police officer is not status quo. It's not what we're taught. So you have to break through that stigma. So not only are you breaking through that stigma, but you're breaking through the stigma of addiction and PTSD. Why not break through the stigma of what you just said, something that, that triggered the thought, which was that's not what we're taught. What about going to the education point and, and teaching something different? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a lot that has to be fixed within the police department. You're seeing it now. It's coming yeah. out. It, yeah. And, and, a lot of it's training. A lot of it's, I don't want to get into all the, all the politics that are going on, but, but you know, as an officer, I knew the officers that were struggling. I knew yeah. them. I knew them. I knew what they were going through. Uh, you can see it. 
Tell me about, I guess I have a question about that. And you tell me if this is, you know, off limits. So with the officers that are struggling or the, or the things that you're seeing, you know, with everything that's coming, you know, defund the police, this whole thing, what is it that you think, how did we go from, you know, I guess many people have had the experience in America of not feeling that the police have their best interests. So I, you know, to say, how did we go from feeling safe to not, which that's not necessarily true, but how did we get to where we are now where basically we've completely uh, discredited or I, I, my guess is that the police force is feeling incredibly alienated and the good police officers must be absolutely, I mean, heartbroken. What do you think, what do you, from having been in it, what do you think happened? What do you think is going on? Uh, I think it's more public. You know, I think, I think access to media, access to cell phones, access to videos. You know, what's interesting is as an officer, we knew the officers we wanted to work with. Right, right, right. Uh, and that's interesting. I had an officer that every time he showed up to a scene, we could have everything 100% under control he would show up and say something and it would be a fight. Mm. Just his demeanor, his approach, mm-hmm. the way that he communicated with people. And we actually would cancel him from scenes like, hey, we got this covered. Do not come because we didn't want to take it there. And, and it's like any profession. I would say the majority of the people are there because they love what they're doing. But you have always have a small group of people who just are doing it for the wrong reasons. And I think you're seeing that more. I, 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 they're not exposing the good cops. They're not, they're not talking about yeah. the good things that are happening on a daily basis. The, yeah. I mean, if you did, the news would be flooded with life-saving events and, and how we're helping people on a daily basis. What you're seeing now is the fruits of bad cops. And they're out there. But there's also bad poli- uh, firefighters. There's bad attorneys. Yeah. There's bad judges. I mean, you see yeah. it. But because of the stigma with racism right now, it's it's on the forefront. One of the things that just, again, stop me if this is off limits. I had a question about, um, you know, the thing that happened when George, when George Floyd, um, when that happened, one of the things that I found very confusing, aside from, uh, you know, obviously being completely heartbroken about the whole thing and traumatized from it. Why would an officer knowing he's being filmed continue to do some, continue to stand on someone's neck? Like it's because one of the things I heard was that stand that, that that was a specific hold that you guys were taught or that people were taught that, you know, to, to stop them from moving. Why would an officer knowing they're being filmed risk that? Why would he do that? Now, I'm just going to speak from what I've seen because I wasn't there. I don't know anything before. I don't know. You don't think there was a tussle. I don't know. But just from what the camera showed, the officer was in violation. And and that's just coming from me because here's the deal. If you handcuff somebody, okay, he was handcuffed. He was laying on his side. He's no longer a threat. Right. And the rules are if you have someone handcuffed there, you can't add any more threat or force to them. At least in our policies and procedures, you can't do that. Okay. So, and why they're on his neck. I don't, I don't know. Like, that's not something that we were trained. We didn't, we didn't sit on people's necks. I mean, we would go to chokehold if it was a life or death situation. And that was the only time you could even go around the neck is if, if if it's escalated to use of force, but him sitting there, one thing you have to understand, this is what I'm talking about. Bad officers. Like I said, I don't know this guy. 
Yeah. But I know from what I researched that he's had a ton of use of force complaints. Yeah. Okay. So here's what happens. If you have use of force complaints, obviously there is something going on and that's an internal issue. That's a policy issue. That's, that's a, that's a police in yourself issue. Ashley, it's the same thing with you. If you have, if you have someone working for you that is having the same complaints over and over, unfortunately you have to get rid of them. Right. Like I can't, you're a liability. And I mean, his was his, there was a lot and why he was still available. I don't know. Why would someone. So one of the things people said to me was, well, the cops think they're invincible. That's why he was doing something while on camera, because you would think that being on camera, I mean, he knows that he's being videotaped, that that has a life of its own. I mean, who I don't care how you know that. Why this is, have we created or are, you know, from your experience, do they think that it's just not, they're just above it? Like, or is it just like, straight up mental illness insanity. I have never and so I worked for for almost 8 years as a police officer and I never I never came across someone that was just dirty. Just just a bad cop. Okay. okay. Does that makes sense. I, I don't yeah. think but there are that are that are super vigilant, super hyper. They they go over the top on things and when they when that happened, they they had a consequence. Why he did it on film, I don't know. That was uh the thing is, there's other things he could have done easily. They could have picked him up, put him in a police car. They could have called an ambulance. Yeah. There's, just, there's so many variables that he could have done it. I'm not so concerned about him as where were his partners? Where were the people that were there with him? Why weren't they getting involved? Right. Why didn't they talk to him? Because I know a lot of times in, in a police department, if you're the guy fighting and you've been fighting for three minutes, it's always nice to have another guy come in, take you from the scene, handcuff the guy so it doesn't go in, to that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. now you're pissed. Yeah, and your adrenaline is going. You're fighting for your gun and you're fighting yeah. for your life. And so it's nice to have that. So I, we don't know all that. I just know that there's very, very good police officers out there that are being traumatized by bad ones, yeah. you know? And, and like you said, you don't know if that guy has mental illness, if he has an yeah. addiction going on, we don't know. Anything I mean, it about was it. just, yeah. to me, the whole thing was just, it didn't even, even if you, if, even if you're like, Oh yeah, he's a bad person. It still doesn't make sense from a logical perspective. Mm-hmm. Like why does someone act in their, oh, this is not in his interest regardless of anything else. But you know, I, it was very eye opening to me all of these things coming to light in terms of how people are treated differently. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know the extent I didn't. I mean, I knew it was, I had heard, but I really didn't understand the extent. There's not a chance that I thought it was as bad as it has been. But I also, you know, think to myself, like I call the police when I'm scared. I mean, that is, I like, that is who we call. That is who I call. And so I, and I do know that there are, are good police officers out there and my heart has hurt for them because I know that it hit this time, this year has probably been incredibly difficult. And I wonder if that will push more police officers to push out the bad ones. You hope, you hope it does. And I bet I'm assuming it will. Like I said, there's amazing officers out there and all they want to do is serve and go home and protect their families. That's really what I see. But you're, but you're right there. They're in some communities. Um, I can't speak for Arizona and and Mesa. We have uh, where I work there. We're, we're full. 
Hispanics, African-Americans. I mean, the racism, I didn't feel it here, you know, to be honest, but I'm also raised with a mom and dad from Mississippi who brought that into our lives. Like, Hey, we are people and we bleed the same, but I I could see it in, in some of these rural areas, you know, it, it could be happening. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not happening everywhere, but I feel blessed that I never experienced that as a police officer in my community. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Have you spoken with some of your friends about the stuff that's been going on and been there to talk to them or most of the the most of the retired ones and they're all like i'm so glad to be out yeah yeah because you're going through it right now they're going through it's going to get better but they're going through it yeah yeah how can people reach out to you what kind of stuff are you doing you are are, you said you're doing one-on-ones right Uh, i have a website at chasethevase.com we just and you you actually helped us. We we had that twenty twenty recovery summit dot com. That was really cool. People awesome. can get on there and just learn more about everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's really important. That's kind of why I'm doing this is I want people to understand that I have great information about recovery, but the way I recovered was not how you recovered, right? So find right. that individual who is a specialist in the mode of your recovery. Mm -hmm. So if you love AA, go find that person that promotes AA. If you want Christ, go find that person. If you want a sponsorship, does that make sense? And so that's why I'm doing it. And so all I'm trying to do is kick out what I know and then take you and say, Hey, I know a person very well that can, that, that pushes what you, what you want to do. Yes. Because I'm not naive to believe that I'm the only guy out there that knows what I'm doing. Right. Right. I mean, and there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways that have worked for people. And it's important, I think, you know, particularly those of us who are 12 step, which I happen to be, um, but I'm open to other forms and I know people get sober other ways. And I think it's really important, particularly 12, 12 step people who tend to not be willing to look at other things. It's important for us to be willing to say, you know, this isn't the only way you can get Right. Help. And you can mix them. You could use 12 yeah. step with, with, you know, there's other programs yeah. out there. Um, so I know that works as well. So you, um, so chase the vase.com right. and, um, you're doing coaching. I am. I do okay. coaching. Okay. Awesome. And are you still teaching CrossFit? I do. I do. Every uh, every Monday and Friday. My wife and I both. She teaches a class and I teach a class. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we love it. Workout of the day. Yes. Exercise has been such a key part of um, my recovery and many people I know. So for me, it's been if I don't if I don't exercise, I can feel that I'm getting mentally ill. (laughs) <laughs> you know, during the day I could feel the I building. I'm that. like, I got to get out. Yeah. 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 I like that. It's to feel the, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> sweat out, sweat away the crazy, work off the Man, crazy. I'm yep. serious. Yeah. But uh, I know you're doing big things. Can, I want to, I want to share with you something that I want, I, I want help with you ready. I'm, and I'm being serious about recovery. Okay. I'm seeing this mom's club. I'm seeing all these women's putting together these phenomenal programs. And I think we need a dad's club. I, I, I feel agree. I feel like we need to get moms and dads on the same mm-hmm. podcast, same experts, and put some men and women on there and find out how we can reach out to a lot of these men because we don't want to open up our feelings as much. Yep. 
right? Yep, so- I, I 100% agree with you. And it's so much easier for moms to connect because we have to, We're and we're very community-based. But I do, I see a lot of the husbands kind of drifting away. And I think, and, you know, and of course, they don't want to hear it from us. <laughs> But they'll, but they'll listen to it if we're all on board. Like I think yes. we should get a, a panel about four of us and just two men, two women, and just talk about it because it's so important to be able to see there's so much commonality between what we're doing. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, I'm happy you tell me when and and uh, we'll make it happen. I would love that. Well, you're awesome. doing big, big things. So thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank Brock, you. You can send me you. an email. I'm I'm at uh, chasing ingthevase.com. So if anybody wants to email, ask questions, I'm on Facebook, same thing, Chase the Vase. They can find me anywhere. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I, I look forward to working together in the future. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.